Welcome one and all to the Marxism Translated podcast, wherever you might be listening and whatever time of day it may be. Today we have a fascinating discussion with the historian Stefan Kuschwitzer from Serbia. Welcome, Stefan. Hi, Ben. Hi. Um, we, <laughs> Stefan and I met each other at the recent international was Luxembourg conference in Budu, uh, Norway. And Stefan gave a really, really interesting talk on the reception of Goza Luxembourg's thought among the Balkan left between 1917 and 1923, which was amazing. Um, and we will come back to that probably later on to discuss. But I thought, uh, you know, before we get to these, the, the, you know, the, the talk that you gave and some of the questions that arise from it, it, it before we get into detail, as it were, um, maybe just some some opening remarks, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, your research interests. I said you're from Serbia. Um, you know, how did you arrive at these questions? And, you know, how did you get where you are now talking to me today? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so to start off, I guess, uh, I mean, I decided that I want to pursue history and history of communism, specifically during my uh, BA studies in Prague at the Anglo-American University. And I already began uh, researching Marxism at that point and reading Marxist literature quite seriously. And I realized that there's been quite a significant contingent of Yugoslav communists who were politically active in Prague in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, a lot of them were students, but for a while, the Communist Party of Yugoslavia itself had uh, the party press located in Prague. And then for a time, some members of the Politburo lived there because it was a place where they could operate legally. So, so I started kind of with this like, quite narrow topic for my uh, BA thesis. Uh, and then the um, it kind of became obvious to me that, yes, this is what I'd be do dealing with, the history of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. And I always was interested in these kind of uh, stories untold, you know, kind of raising from the dead these important theoreticians, important figures that uh, have kind of been forgotten because of this uh, major focus on uh, the partisan struggle in World War II as a formative period. But, you know, uh, that made a lot of us on the left uh, vulnerable from the perspective of nationalist and liberal historical revisionists who, you know, they said in 19, you know, essentially they said that until 1941, there was no communism. And then, you know, they abused the situation of war to kind of trick people and, uh, you know, have people who wrongly thought that they're fighting against the occupiers and kind of, uh, you know, uh, force them into a revolutionary movement that they did not necessarily agree with. Uh, yeah. But the reality, of course, is far more complex than that. You know, if you go through the, center of Belgrade today, you can see the oldest yeah. graffiti in Belgrade uh, from 1920 called vote, uh, uh, saying vote Filip Filipovic. And Filip Filipovic is the first democratically elected uh, communist mayor of Belgrade in the year 1920, who's never allowed to actually become mayor. And we'll talk about him, I think, a lot here. But so you know, this, kind of this idea of like t Titoism as, as, as a trick, basically, and then something imposed on, it almost yeah, yeah. came with the occupation or as a response to it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is uh, as I was uh, later told by a tour guide when I moved to Budapest for my master's study at uh, CEU, uh, communism was never accepted here because it goes uh, against the inherent values of uh, the Hungarian nation, such as freedom, entrepreneurship, and Christianity. <laughs> it was very much a similar narrative in, yeah, yeah. in Serbia as well uh, and in Croatia. I'm, I'm a dual citizen, so I kind of, you know, I feel both of the countries to be my own, and they yeah, have. Yeah. Also, these very ethnocentric narratives, you know, in Serbia, the idea that communism was anti-Serbian and pro-Croatian, and then in Croatia, it was pro-Serbian and anti-Croatian. And of course, they're both kind of ridiculous, but they're a mirror image of each other. Uh, so yeah. for my MA in Budapest, I then uh, started uh, working on uh, the history of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia during the Great Purge. Uh, so specifically, 
from 1936 until 1940, actually, which is when they had the fifth uh, land conference, as they call it, which is essentially when Tito was confirmed as the general secretary by the party in Yugoslavia. And I, I saw this as kind of the last uh, major unresearched uh, period in the history of the party, you know, uh, who were the other competitors and why is there so much of a focus on Tito? I tried to present it in a different way, you know, not as a sort of a teleological uh, rise of Tito to power, but essentially a situation where uh, the previous general secretary, Milan Gorkic, is arrested under false charges of espionage. And then uh, Tito uh, Tito became, uh, you know, one of many candidates, but essentially you have a situation in which you have a general chaos uh, many people vying for powers, many uh, sort of interest groups within the party, and Tito is the one who turns out victorious, but I sh showed that this was not the predestined outcome and that there were some other quite worthy challengers and some other fascinating figures who we should take seriously in the history of Yugoslav communism. And then I, I wanted for my uh, doctoral research to kind of expand this and see uh, you know, what were the transnational ties during the purge itself, but I was encouraged by my supervisor, this was already in Regensburg under Ulf Brunbauer, uh, uh, to kind of cover a broader time period. He, I don't think he uh, intended as broad as what I ended up with, but I think I managed to kind of narrow it down uh, neatly, especially now as I'm turning the manuscript into a book. Uh, but Essentially, uh, you know, I decided to broaden the scope on the Balkan Communist parties, so to keep uh, away from the Yugoslav perspective, which, you know, even though it's seven countries today, it still feels kind of insular and was a single national context for most of the 20th century. So I expanded onto the Balkans, and in, originally I thought it would be just the 1920s, but it ended up being uh, covering the period from the early 1900s until the mid-1930s. So my doctoral dissertation, which I defended last uh, November, is called uh, Sickle Without Hammer, a Revolution and Nation Building in the Balkans from the 1900s to the 1930s. And uh, the theme of kind of, you know, going beyond nationalism and away from nationalism was also part of my motivation here. So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to focus on the Balkan story and specifically on the umbrella uh, organization of the Comintern called the Balkan Communist Federation. Uh, because that would be a way to get beyond uh, the uh, individual uh, national contexts and look beyond what the ethnocentric historiographies have been doing. Uh, much to my dismay, after some time, I found out that the primary activity of the Balkan Communist Federation was, in fact, to coordinate work with the so-called national revolutionary organizations. So they were the section that dealt the most with the national question. In, against the 30s? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Is that yeah. What, yeah, 30s? So uh, it was founded in 1920, and right. it went on most likely until 1933, uh, so when okay. Dimitrov was arrested in Berlin, basically, where he was heading the organization at the time. Uh, but it became, you know... Um, I ended up kind of unwittingly dealing with the national question, which I didn't really want to do, but the Balkan perspective nevertheless did give me the understanding to kind of decenter the national question, but also to understand it in a different way from what uh, historians have been writing so far. Because for most historians, whether this is Romania, Greece, Bulgaria, or Yugoslavia, you always have this idea that uh, these communists are somehow anti-national and a very judgmental and very, you know, methodological nationalist approach to this. You would presume some sort of a uh, ahistorical abstract national interest, and then you apply this national interest on um, onto the communists and see whether they were kind of 
fulfilling the goals of the nation or not. And I'm trying to show that, you know, this is completely, this is a, a ridiculous way of looking at it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't tell us what these people actually thought, and it doesn't give us their sense of what nationalism was truly about. So in the end, I am happy that I ended up dealing with nationalism, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> even though I didn't want to. Just a very quick quick question. I mean, I want to make a few other comments on you as well, because clearly, you know, you're somebody who's incredibly well positioned to militate against a national perspective, because you're one of these incredibly annoying people that speak, I mean, obviously you speak fantastic English, you have Russian. Yes. Yeah, uh, you have German to some extent. Um, I've worked with some documents, but my German, I must admit, is not as good, even though I <laughs> studied there for my PhD. But... Um, <laughs> And then, so Serbian, yeah. So, so, so Serbo, so t- uh, tell me, because again, you've got. So, I was going to say Serbian, Croatian, but Serbo Croat is, is yeah, yeah, is I, language, right? How does yeah, that work? I'm also, one of those annoying people who insists that Serbo Croatian is a single language. Okay, uh, right. Okay. We'll be talking probably a lot about spatial definitions yeah, in yeah. this uh, uh, first part in general, but essentially, Serbo Croatian. Uh, was how this language was standardized in the 19th century yeah. and it's you know it's kind of a historical testimony to the drive of balkan peoples to live together and to be a single people you know, the, the german linguist actually originally named it this way in the early 1800s because they understood that this is fundamentally the same language and they simply took the uh, self-designation of the easternmost and the westernmost people that they saw speaking the language. Okay. Essentially, today this language is spoken in uh, Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia, and Croatia. Right. Although they claim that these languages are Serbian, Croatian, Montenegro, Interesting. And Bosnian. Yeah. Because I, because I, I always uh, would hear Serbo-Croat. That's how it was in the English sphere. But yeah, yeah. to me, I, I, the, I was, I was wondering if that was slightly passe and almost like politically incorrect, if you see what I mean. Because you know that that yeah. what you say makes makes absolute sense. Yeah, yeah, and I mean. You know, it is, you know, I think in the Balkans, it's considered politically incorrect. You know, yeah. the nationalists wouldn't call it this because they're the ones railing against political correctness, allegedly. But, you know, they really yeah, insist on the political correctness of pretending that these are distinct languages. You yes, also yeah. have, for example, at, uh, at the Hague Tribunal, the politically correct term was BCS, Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian. So that okay. it doesn't kind of, you know, uh, leave out Bosnia in there, yeah, uh, yeah. Which, you know. Essentially, you know, I don't think it matters as long as you acknowledge it's the same language and you don't, you know, put people through unnecessary administrative hurdles over it sure, or something sure. like that. Yeah. But you said then, basically, you, so you, so your 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 um, uh, I'm trying to think of the English word. Your message, you 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 command three or four languages, so you've got that, <laughs> you know, that ability to see, you know, establish these connections as well. And, um, and I can always easily double that in my CV by pretending Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian. <laughs> That's a good trick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, I, I speak, I, I speak Kölsch, Cologne, and yeah. German. So, you know, that gives me another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's interesting. So, so that, that obviously comes to a question we'll, we'll return to later. And the, the other thing I wanted, to, the other comment I wanted to make was um, uh, a sickle without hammer, presumably that's a reference to the class basis of these movements insofar as that you know the peasantry is, is dominant in these societies uh and and there's a the, the hammer is less a present yeah. or you know is something that is outside to a certain extent right so well yeah. maybe talk you can talk a little bit more about the book later because we'd uh mm. we, you know i'm sure people would like to to hear more about that and you know just generally i mean we spoke about this before Many of the listeners to this this uh, podcast will be obviously incredibly interested in Marxism and socialism and communism. Um, 
but probably don't aren't necessarily versed in the kind of politics and, and and history of the Balkans. I mean, I think today our focus will be kind of the Balkan left broadly before World War One and, and up to the Russian Revolution, maybe a bit beyond. I mean, obviously, you, you, your work covers the huge ground. I'm not even sure we'll be able to touch on, on you know, most of that today. But you know, could you give us because I know these things are disputed and obviously yeah. from a, from somebody living in Britain and in our perspective of what happens in Serbia, et cetera, it's limited and often misinformed. Um, could you just give an idea of what you understand by the Balkans or the Balkan left, how it comes into being, you know, in, in this broad period, say between you know, at the turn of the 20th century, um, you know, what does it in, 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 entail in terms of polities and nations? Uh, some obviously come from the uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and independence. Uh, others don't, as far as I'm aware of it. So, you know, yeah. could you just give us a, a brief overview? And, you know, yeah. maybe, you know, there's always that joke, isn't there? I think it was a Zizek joke, you know, oh, don't go there, it's the Balkans, right? And then someone yeah, else, yeah, yeah. don't go there, that's the Balkans. You know, it's obviously a disputed political football as well. But, and, and, you know, and it's not funny in that sense either, because it's yeah. linked to a, a whole sort of host of problems that continue to this day. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what what do you understand by, when you use the term Balkan left, the Balkan socialist, what, what does that entail yeah. for you and, and, and why? Yeah. Um, I'll I'll take a step back there. Massive question. Brief, yeah, 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 because <laughs> it is a massive question. But just you know, uh, a rather uh, brief step back, or at least I'll try to make it so to the kind of early 1800s, because you know yeah. that is when the term uh, Balkans really comes through into general use in Europe through German academics. They also start using the term South Southeast Europe, which you know the Germans right. use to this day. The graduate school, yeah. yeah, yeah, the graduate school in Regensburg, where I got my PhDs. Yeah, for Southeast European studies. Yeah, so, yeah. as opposed yeah, and, to like Middle Europa and Ostern Europa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's we don't really have that in yeah. English, do we? That's the thing because you know you wouldn't say you wouldn't say Southeast Europe. Really. Yeah, people it wouldn't really sense. know what you're talking about. But, exactly, you, you, yeah, you, you know yeah. roughly where to point, but you would yeah, say yeah. yeah, you'd say the Balkans, Eastern Europe, Russia. You wouldn't really say Central Europe either, but maybe that's anyway. So sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah. you. That's um, no, no, it's fine. Yeah, and so essentially, at the same time, you know, the, the idea of Balkan federalism kind of appears at the same time, and already in the late 1700s, uh, Riga Sperayos, the uh, first great Greek national revolutionary, he proposes this idea of a Balkan federation, and then this is seen as a federation of uh, Christian nations that liberate themselves from the Turks. Uh, right. So you know, much like the roots of the word Europe, the Balkans here have these kind of, you know, implications of excluding the Muslim populations, which it wouldn't necessarily have later on. And through, uh, through the 19th century, uh, this becomes the, uh, the political project of liberal thinkers. So they start talking about Balkan federalism, especially in the mid 19th century. And um, their idea is essentially, you know, they observe the region, they see how ethnically mixed it is, you know, as most of Europe was kind of before. Uh, nation states kind of homogenize the spaces. And, you know, they think a Balkan federation is the best way to overcome any possible future divisions. And you see even with a lot of liberal Serbian or Bulgarian nationalists and early socialists, you know, they uh, they are nationalist, but at the same time, they envision a more broader federal uh, community because they don't see, you know, how you could have a clean cut border between Serbia and Bulgaria without some major conflict. And then by around the 1870s, um, uh, socialists uh, pick up on this idea of uh, the Balkan Federation. And yeah. for them, it is an idea of uh, killing two birds with one stone. So on one hand, yes, it's about stopping kind of uh, ethnic conflicts, which do uh, start at this point, especially among Christian and Muslim populations. In the 1870s. 
yeah yeah yep, but yep. At, yeah but at the same time uh what you see is uh, they are also seeing this as a, a kind of a way to ensure proper independence of these nations under the influence of the great powers they don't use the term imperialism quite yet yep. but you know the the balkans at that point are seen essentially as a the Christian territories of the Ottoman Empire. And some of them right. are gradually gaining autonomy and then independence in the 1870s. Uh, but they see that, you know, they can't really develop because, uh, you know, every time they want uh, to, as they see it, you know, liberate the territories under Ottoman control. And I use the term very loosely because there is yeah. a lot of Muslim populations there. But every time they want to liberate these territories, Austria-Hungary gets involved or Russia gets involved. So the first socialists already kind of see the problems with this. And of yeah. course, Germany also has its designs, the United Kingdom too. So, yeah, um, yeah. so for them, it already becomes this kind of push against great powers. Although this is, you know, what uh, historiography during state socialism has called the utopian socialists. You know, this is before the advent of kind of second international right. uh, politics there. And so at the time, the is there a, sorry, to, to interrupt, is there a kind of a populist element to it as well in terms of the the, the social base and the ideas? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, the, yeah. So the, I think uh, there is a whole body of historiography claiming that the roots of Balkan socialism can be found in Russian populism. Yeah, uh, and I, there are some influences, but I'm definitely in the school of uh, people like Woodford McClellan who said that the. Uh, Actually, it is definitely German and French socialism which played yeah. a determining role. Which uh, is also Todorova's point, I think, as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. I've been reading about her book. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about yeah. that later, maybe the mirror to Yeah, yeah. McClellan was kind of the first, you know, writing sort of half a century ago right. when there you had these orientalizing stereotypes of the uh, Bolshevik roots and the Russian Narodniki. And then also, yeah, of course, that these Balkan uh, uh, socialist states are authoritarian because they also come from the same background. But then he shows that, no, actually, you know, these are thoroughly European movements. Yeah, we cannot yeah, discount yeah. that. And all yeah, these yeah. people, yeah, they, you know, some of them did get an education in Russia. And I will mention some of them, uh, mm -hmm. Filip Filipovich, who I already mentioned, but, you know, yeah. most of them get an education in Switzerland, Germany, or Austria. Yeah. Interesting. And then Bulgarians and the uh, the Greeks in particular in France. So mm -hmm. it's far more complex than just Russian so, influence. So, so, I mean, without kind of homogenizing too much, because obviously you, you have to get some kind of narrative. There's obviously, this is kind of the period, and you mentioned uh, um, uh, Serbo-Croat or Serbo-Croatian yeah. language seen as, as one thing in the 1800s. So could you see this as a kind of general development of, not, of you know, in that sense, it's a, it's, a, it's a normal or standard development in the sense that there's common languages, there's a push to common state structures, uh, and the national state, nation states, albeit yeah. with the, the 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 links that you that you describe in terms of you know a federation makes sense because a lot yeah. of these states are small and you know they have a lot in common but differences as well. Um, it's so it's, could you then sit, say that the because obviously you have the the nations that emerge from the the the, the declining Ottoman Empire yeah. or the peoples that emerge from the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. You also have then the the peoples that emerge from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Do they have a similar fate? Or, or is there something specific about their development in each case? Because obviously they're two different empires, but empires, you know, often yeah. have over, similar overriding concerns, etc. Because yeah. um, you know you have Croatia or you know or Bulgaria. Could you say that their their fate is kind of common or dissimilar, but albeit from different backgrounds? It's very difficult to kind of summarize. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was as I was saying, you know, that uh, 
the Balkans in the mid to late 19th century means the territories of the former Ottoman Empire. I was already thinking in the back of my head, yes, you yeah. know, how am I going to tie this into Austria-Hungary? Because that's right. Yes, this is how it's seen. But I think towards the uh, last decade of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th, uh, sort of some areas of Austria-Hungary become considered, you know, at least in the imaginaries of some people, is also Balkan, or at least related to what is going in the Balkans. And I'll get to that. Right. But, Interesting. Um, but even before that, I think what is crucial is that yes, uh, they are very much intertwined. So, yeah. you know, this uh, these essentially uh, merchant classes that begin uh, Orthodox merchant classes that begin the national revolutions in the early nineteenth century. You know, they are. You know, I won't get into that because we have to go also then into world no, systems sure. analysis, and there's some debates <laughs> there. But you know, they are you know, to put it simply a proto bourgeoisie that develops in these areas, and you know, I mean. Uh, they have constant uh, trade links with uh, the Austrian Empire in yeah. the early 19th century, you know, and this is where they get the Enlightenment ideas from. You know, sure. they, this is where they learn about the French Revolution, and this is where they get the idea of nationhood. This is why you know these uprisings turn from uprisings of disgruntled merchants who are dissatisfied by the instability of the central government into full-blown national uprisings and calling for liberty, equality, fraternity. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, Austria is kind of always present in the story. It exercises a huge impact. It is kind of also a bridge to Europe. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it is an inspiration because, you know, they uncritically accept this, uh, you know, uh, story of the inferiority of the Ottomans. So, you know, the, the Europe also gives them, you know, kind of the uh, arguments for, you know, ethnically cleansing the major cities off of Muslim populations and then yeah, demolishing yeah. the mosques and so on, because you want your cities to look European, right, with wide boulevards and all that. Never so, will the Turk come to Vienna, as it says, yeah, says in the yeah. Yeah, must come to talk enough for you. Yeah, yes, and yeah. they were then trying to drive the Turk out of, you know, Athens as well, or Belgrade, yeah. you know, the Acropolis yeah, yeah. in the 19th century had a minaret that was demolished because, you know, it didn't fit with the romantic idea of what the acropolis should look like right interesting kinds of things yeah so so, so could so could you say then that, that basically what we because again it's a disputed term where does the balkan start where do they end yeah. but could you broadly say that they are fundamentally at least in in historical sense the territories and peoples we could then later say and states i suppose right the territories and peoples that emerge out of the both of these empires because they both all of them do right i think pretty much without yes. exception yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, so yeah. They, they all do yeah 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 and it's that, place... that, that's that's also then links to this question of hunk because we were talking about the disputed position of hungary the austro-hungarian yeah, yeah. empire you know and who could yeah. just hungry hungry and you know I, i'm not an expert on the austro-hungarian empire but you know it was centered on v vienna wasn't it and and, and you know th there was a sense in which hungary was you know or what we now understand as hungary was peripheral already to that empire in in a sense yeah, yeah. right in terms of designs but th so that that makes sense i think you know if, if we're looking for some broad definition historically um, yeah yeah and then yeah. what you said, what you say, I thought was really interesting. Then about how the the left realizes that then these national aspirations, or to to form some kind of independence, they immediately run up against the barrier of the the world yeah. powers, basically the even Britain, but particularly Russia, Austria, Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, you know, yeah. yeah. Turks. Um, yeah, so the Austrian Empire just very briefly becomes Austria Hungary in eighteen sixty seven. So at that okay. point, they have a dual monarchy, yeah, and yeah. Uh, although you know, both parts will be related to the Balkans in certain ways because Dalmatia is under the direct rule of Vienna, Slovenia is under the direct rule of Vienna. You know, Hungary is really the part that I think becomes more closely intertwined uh, with the Balkans as well. 
Interesting. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, as I want to say, sorry, I forgot now. Uh, yes, I interrupted you as well. Yeah, so, you know, in the 1870s, you know, what we have a very direct uh, involvement because you have a series of uprisings of Christians in u
uh, Romanian sections and um, they do leave quite a mark uh, on these people, some of whom would then later become uh, leading figures in the establishment of the communist parties of the Balkans and of the Balkan Communist Federation. And they definitely uh, influenced how people in these areas uh, received and understood the national question at the time. So Hungary for me is the Balkans until 1918, essentially, and yeah. no longer so after 1918 for the purposes of my study. Whereas okay. on the other hand, I look a lot at Bessarabia after 1918, which is not present in the narratives before 1918, because Bessarabia, uh, the Bolsheviks are hoping, can become kind of a, a starting point of a broader revolution in Romania. And the Balkan Communist Federation, as the umbrella organization of the Comintern, begins dealing very seriously with the Bessarabian question. Interesting. So, so Hungary until 1918. The... Um... The, the question I wanted to ask you as well is because oh, clearly with the Hungarian party, the Hungarian party was also in, incredibly influ in, influential intellectually, you know, and, and, and produced all sorts of figures that we will, we, you know, the household names today in terms of the, the world left, I would, I would say, right. Even if sometimes like negative, like Bela Kuhn and others. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's, that, that makes a certain sense to me. Then, so, so you get this situation with the, so we, you know, we now, we now know broadly what we understand, or what you understand, what you see, what you argue is, is the, is the bulk Balkan left broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. um, how do they then, come about as, as as organizations you have the is it the balkan league is it it's that's that's, that's the balkan league is is a, is a um a bourgeois nationalist project i understand right yeah, yeah is it the case then that the the balkan left kind of takes that as a model or it uses it as a as a target as a, in a way of saying okay we need a similar organization but but on a class basis or how, how does that how does that work yeah. maybe maybe a few words on the balkan league as well and yeah yeah uh, so essentially, you know, the first uh, uh, sort of socialist Balkan federalists in the 1870s, you know, from a contemporary perspective, it's kind of hard to say where the socialist ends and the nationalist begins and the nationalist ends and the liberal begins, because they are kind of a mashup of all of, of, all of these ideas, you know, and, you know, they, they're they inspired by the Paris Commune, but they're also inspired by the Jacobins and uh, out of the 1870s socialist movement, you also have the rise of the radical party in Serbia, which essentially, you know, starts off as sort of inspired by Russian populism and then just becomes the uh, structurally the governing party of uh, Serbia and then Yugoslavia from kind of the 1890s until the 1930s, essentially until the end of Yugoslavia in 1941, wow. the, the end of the Yugoslav Kingdom. So, yeah. you know, uh, they all have these ideas starting from Balkan federalism. It's just that some of these people eventually give them a very markedly nationalist twist. And uh, uh, the Balkan states themselves in the early 1900s, they begin talking more and more about the fact that, yes, we do need an alliance of Balkan states. So we need an alliance of Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, Montenegro, and Serbia to finally get the Turks out of the Balkans once and for all. Um, the socialists are saying, no, this is absolutely not the solution. You know, they are looking in a completely different direction. They are, um, they are looking at the class-based, yeah, definitely a class-based Balkan federation. They say that, you know, uh, they begin questioning whether uh, these states are progressive, essentially. You know? And the, uh, even before the establishment of the Balkan League, the, uh, the important event is uh, 1908, because in 1908 you have uh, the Young Turk Revolution, and then you have the formal annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina by 
um, you know, Austria-Hungary. And, you know, the Serbian Social Democrats, they actively oppose the annexation of Bosnia uh, uh, by Austria-Hungary. Uh, Dmitry Tutsovic, one of the kind of rising stars among the party theoreticians, he calls it actually a colonial act. Um, the Austro-Marxists are defensive of this. They have kind of a Bernsteinian uh, defense uh, of, you know, taking over Bosnia as a, a civilizing. civilizing mission. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they also accuse Tutsovic of nationalism. They say, well, of course, he's going to say that he just wants Bosnia to become part of Serbia. But Tutsovic says, no, I do not think Bosnia should become part of Serbia. I think the governments of Serbia and of Bosnia should be overthrown in a Balkan-wide revolution. I do not support the Serbian monarchy. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah. similar things, you know, similar things uh, happen, obviously, in uh, Bulgaria as well and in Romania. You know, there's, you know, there is a difference between whether do we whether we want, you know, Transylvania united with Romania because we consider this to be a progressive step in sort of the bourgeois stage, you know, the creation of coherent nation, nation states. Or, you know, if this is going to just be an act of conquest by a state, which we've seen, you know, wherever it does conquer, it just establishes a class society. And this is not something that we as socialists want. So, you know, the, the, these ideas become really press, pressing. This is what becomes kind of crucial, you know, okay, we are socialists, right? So why would we be, you know, yes, there is a feudal Ottoman Empire, but why would we, we why would we be happy with its downfall, if its downfall is going to mean merely capitalism. And um, this is what happens essentially with the establishment of the Balkan League, the alliance of these Balkan countries. They do drive out uh, the Ottomans from the Balkans. And you would think in an orthodox Marxist sense, yes, they would presume, oh, this is going to result in the removal of feudal remnants in the Balkans. And therefore, uh, this is a progressive act. And there are some Marxists who think this with the first Balkan War in 1912. Uh, already the Second Balkan War in 1913 shows that, you know, these hopes were for nothing because the Second Balkan War is between Serbia and Bulgaria because they begin arguing over the division of Macedonia. So immediately, you know, instead of focusing on development and developed capitalism, they just end up, you know, fighting each other for you know, a bigger piece of the national territory. So even those who in 1912 said, well, we should support the liberation of Macedonia because it will bring an end to feudalism. Already by 1913, they realized they were wrong. Later, by the 1920s, they will see that, you know, a lot of these places, the feudal structures are still in place. The new states decided not to touch those. And that, of course, is very important if you're a Marxist. Yeah. It's also strange, I suppose, that it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because also you've got the question of, you know, largely feudal states bringing capitalism to other, other <laughs> to, 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 to more feudal states, if you like, or something. So that's, that, that, that's, a, that's a tricky question as well. And interestingly, you know, you mentioned Bernstein and civ civilizing yeah. uh, imperialism. That actually does relate to the Ottoman Empire because it's the mm. it's the Armenian question, isn't it? It's the, the uh, uh, you know, and he, and he says yes, this yeah. you know, this could be a civilizing uh, uh, thing to 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 you know push back to a Turkic rule and, and and all the rest of it. So it's it's not unrelated in in in, in that yeah, sense. Yeah. Right? It's the it, the the similar questions and. In, in a way, it's a it's a complicated one because you know I, I think broadly the way I understand the national question and nation states is that you know we favor the biggest possible states. You know, if there could be one yeah. world state for us to overthrow, it make it yeah. a lot easier, wouldn't it? Right? Because yeah, we just yeah. have one, <laughs> one thing to get on with. Um, you know, but while recognizing that you know people have have their national differences, they they should have the, the self determination, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's when you have when that's overlaid with this national question of all these smaller states and how what to do about it, it becomes quite quite tricky. Um, 
I mean, we, maybe riffing slightly off Bernstein at the moment. We, um, the, the way, I mean, the, probably the the Balkan party that's known best in in Western Europe or in the Anglophone world is the Bulgarian party, partly because of its um, relationship to the Bolsheviks to, in the struggle against the First World War. You mentioned the the first and the second Balkan wars. I, I want to come back to that because it's. Mm. It, it, you know, it, it's it's something that you kind of hear offhand. Oh, yeah, this was a precursor to World War One. OK, but how and why? What was going on? You mean you gave a brief description just now, but maybe we could have a look at the the, the influence of socialist ideas in in on the Balkan left and Bul in the oh. Bulgarian party. Um, because, as you say, many of the questions in which that, that are posed, they're posed in novel and unique ways, but they are things that the left oh. elsewhere is talking about. Um, and you know, to what extent would you see, because we've kind of distanced ourselves slightly from the big influence of Russian populism, which I think I broadly agree yeah. with from, from the little stuff that I've read. Um, what what is the influence of the the rise of the of the second international the SPD Bernstein Kautsky all that kind of stuff is it is the influence there clearly discernible and obvious uh you know and and how does it play out because obviously you have the revisionist contra controversy with Bernstein as far as I know it the Bulgarian party is almost unique in that it splits pretty much imme not immediately after that yeah. but after right like 1904 yeah. was it or something like that or, or yeah. six or four no, four exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe just a few ideas about that. You know, because these these socialist parties are beginning to form and to organize. They're largely peasant societies, but you know, to what extent are they are they getting there? You know, you talked about intellectual influences through through the empire, the or the, the, the declining empires. Um, to what extent are they are they building? Mm. To, what what role did the the second international play in in the emergence and the proliferation of these organizations? Okay. So, so the second international essentially becomes the dominant. Uh, or Marxist current in the 1890s. So Orthodox Marxism really uh, prevails and uh, the German SPD becomes the model party. This is the phrase that George Haupt used again like half a century ago writing about these parties. So already in the 1890s, you have the Bulgarian and the Romanian Social Democrats uh, as uh, member parties of the Second International. Uh, the Serbian one was a latecomer. It was founded in 1903, but it also immediately joins the Second International. Uh, the Greeks were the only one who did not have a uh, party, although uh, uh, Thessaloniki uh, under the Ottomans, you know, the, the famous Balkan melting pot, the harbor, you know, the proletarian city uh, is the one that already has a socialist movement. And that one is also under the influence of the Second, Inter Second International as well. But and not affiliated. Uh, sorry? It's not affiliated. It's just a Thessaloniki based there socialist is group. Yeah, there is a group. I do not recall if they are formal members of the Second International. I'm pretty sure they never sent a delegate to a conference. I haven't so I don't heard think of them, so I, I doubt it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. we can look at that. But it yeah, they were definitely yeah. reading, following, but I don't think they were members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But, um, yeah, and essentially, you know, the, the major issue, uh, of course, is that, you know, we have this orthodox Marxism of the SPD. And uh, the idea, uh, this orthodox Marxism, the way it's transferred from SPD to the Balkans, is kind of mechanical, right? The, what again, going back to what we were talking about, you have feudalism, then you have capitalism, then you have socialism and communism. So essentially, there is a presumption in the orthodoxy of the Second International that since these countries do not have fully developed capitalism yet or are majority feudal, they should first overcome feudalism and fight for capitalism. And uh, I think the party to start with here is always the Romanian Social Democratic Workers' Party, which is my favorite because. Uh, in 1899, the Romanian Social Democratic Party has a Congress, and you know they essentially take the 
uh, Erfurt program and they kind of, you know, apply it to a uh, semi-feudal state and they say, well, wait a minute, what, what is it that we support? We support universal male suffrage, we support freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, we support advanced capitalism, we're liberals. So they dissolved the Romanian Social Democratic Party and they joined the National Liberal Party. This is the so-called treason of the generous. And, you know, there are people who are who do not want to give up on Marxism despite this, you know. And um, a lot of the debates that go around, you know, they are, you know, they're kind of forced into this. The critics, the liberals, the conservatives, they say that, no, this is, you know, Marxism is completely out of place in our societies. What are these people talking about? And notably, the main theoreticians of both the Bulgarian and Romanian Social Democratic Party, their first major pamphlets are actually arguing why is socialism applicable to these peripheral societies, without yet using the term peripheral, of course. Yeah, yeah. So Dimitar Blagoev, uh, later the head of the Bulgarian Neros, his first major pamphlet you know, is literally called What is Socialism and Does it Have a Place with Us? Uh, that's not exactly word for word for translation, yeah, but that's, yeah. that's what he aims at. And then the main uh, Romanian thinker, Constantin Dobrojan Ugera, he, he's a very fascinating figure. He essentially, you know, he's arguing against this also famous thing in Romanian uh, history, you know, the idea that socialism is an exotic plant. That's one of the critics' uh, uh, designation of it. And Ugera tries to prove that this is not the case. And he is the big populist influence. He is, uh, okay. uh, he is actually... Uh, a, a Jewish man who was born under the name Solomon Katz in present-day Eastern Ukraine. He eventually uh, emigrated to Romania, converted to Orthodox Christianity. Uh, he was under the influence of populism, which is why he had to flee Russia to begin with. But then he became a second international Marxist. And Gera is the one who actually uh, begins, especially in the wake of 1899, arguing why we do need uh, socialism in the Balkans. And he essentially looks at the position of the peasantry and uh, kind of applying a Marxist analysis to the peasantry in order to justify the importance of Marxism. And his uh, uh, magnum opus published in 1910 is called The Neo-Serfdom. And this book was a major influence on Trotsky, among other things. And uh, uh, I think Gera is one of the great unsung predecessors of the idea of uneven and combined development. So, you know, he looks at precisely this. How do we have, you know, in the center of Buddha, in the center of Bucharest, we have, you know, 20th century state structures, people dressed as if they're in the center of Paris, there's a few cars around already, you know, but go 30 kilometers out of the city and you have essentially feudal structures still in the countryside and, you know, people with the, no, no basic necessities, you know, subsistence agriculture still even. And so he's the first one who tries to make a serious attempt at describing this, but he's not the only one, you know. Uh, Blagoev also understands that this linear idea makes no sense. So when the Young Turk Revolution takes place in 1908, uh, Blagoev says that the Young Turk Revolution is a feudal bourgeois revolution. You know, obviously, you know, he's not some uneducated guy who doesn't know what words mean. You know, he's using this in a very precise manner. He's trying to say that because of the weakness of the nascent Ottoman bourgeoisie, it is the feudal layers that are pushing the bourgeois revolution you know it is the members of the uh, uh the kind of liberal members of the state apparatus and uh, the military and this is why it's going to be a limiting revolution and blagoev's conclusion is that yes you know this you know this kind of a lump in aristocracy is also not going to be able to finish the bourgeois transformation the bourgeoisie definitely isn't up to the task so who is this left to 
the workers and the peasants. And the peasants, yeah. Yes. That's what so I was going to say. So he comes to the same conclusions as Lenin at virtually the same time. At virtually the same time. And so so yeah. do you think, so <coughs> is that then, and obviously these things are um, difficult to reconstruct, but clearly, you know, you talked about the mechanical approach of Marxism, you know, a, a, man, a mechanical mm -hmm. application uh, to people who then have to, it was it, Romania, wasn't it, where they, they forego yeah. their principles and become liberals. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems to me basically like Bernsteinism, or if you want kind of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, right wing Menshevism, right, in the sense that, you know, there's not yeah. actually much we can do right now. So, you know, what, you know, the Bernstein says, you know, why are we even socialists? This is in Germany, of course. Yeah. Why yeah, in yeah. the first place? But it seems to me that clearly there were even Kautsky, but, but others, you know, they're thinking these things, these questions in far more dynamic ways right and, and you know and, and mm -hmm. it reminds me of the um the letter from uh, a, a group of socialists to Karl Kautsky and from Azerbaijan and he's you know and he, he says to them well look you know I'm not an expert on your area of the world but it mm -hmm. does remind me a little bit about Russia because obviously Kautsky's writing about mm -hmm. Russia uh, and the peasantry and the cl you know, class alliances with the peasantry, the fact that, you know, the, if the proletariat's in the lead of things, it, developments can be made, etc. Do you think that the, the Russian, the RSDLP is also an influence here? It, it, it does, or, or, or do you think it's still mainly coming from the, the Marxism that these people are, you know, defending the need for socialism and socialist movements in the Balkans? Do you think that's mainly still coming from Germany, you know, broadly because they're saying similar things, at least the radical wing, Luxembourg, mm. Kautsky, you know, Mehring and others, you know, about this yeah. revolution impermanence or, you know, permanent revolution, yeah. however you want to describe it. Yeah, uh, there is yeah, there is definitely a bit of a Russian connection, but again, I would yeah. be very cautious. Uh, I, I would caution against overstating it uh, right? because uh, they do definitely look primarily at the German social democracy. And uh, mm. the term I introduce in the uh, my uh, dissertation, and hopefully I'll have a separate article on this alone, is the revolutionary conjuncture. So what I claim is that we have, you know, I look at Balkans as a case study and we can find several examples, but Russia is part of this too, that I think that these uh, Marxists in the periphery, using the orthodox Marxist method, they very often reach similar conclusions about Marxism in the periphery independently of each other. Uh, you know, there might be kind of subsequent recognition and working together, but very often, you know, I'll, I'll get later to some Hungarian Marxists, you know, they, they come to these conclusions completely independently of either uh, Russia or Germany. So they apply the method, method, they try to apply it in a non-dogmatic kind of dynamic way onto yeah. a peripheral society. So obviously they're going to come to a completely different conclusion than what perhaps may be pertinent in a place like Germany. Yeah. Uh, so at the same time, there are definitely links, you know, there are, you know, Filip Filipovic, one of the leading Serbian social democrats, you know, he participates in the first uh, Russian revolution as he's, you know, studying and then later working in Russia. He only returns uh, to Serbia, I think, in 1910. So, you know, obviously he brings this experience. Uh, Dobrojan Gera is really good friends with Trotsky and uh, Rakovsky, him and Trotsky are kind of, you know, the three friends. We actually have a drawing of them together in Bucharest, I think, just before the war. Yeah. Uh, so, and of course, the Bulgarians are connected uh, to the Bolsheviks uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, but again, all of that is not to overstate the uh, the importance and the connections. They are still primarily uh, looking uh, westward. And they're definitely, you know, in the words of Dmitry Tutsovich, you know, we see the success of German social democrats 
as our own because we don't really have that much of a movement going on, you know. Yeah. One or two members of parliament, some strikes, but it's nothing compared to SPD. And presumably that international dimension is all the more important in the sense that, you know, actually it is the more, you know, quote unquote, developed industry, developed countries that will also be able to lead the way in other ways. Right. In the sense that, that you know, because yeah, yeah. they recognize that their fate is also dependent on those of the world powers. Right. So what happens yeah, yeah. in Germany and Britain is obviously and Russia is clearly important to these yeah. people, too. Right. In terms yeah. of overcoming. Yeah, um, but definitely when they're looking, they're thinking, well, this is, you know, they're not thinking that Lenin is going to be the one showing them the way, not until 1917. No, no. They think it's going to be Kautsky. So, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah, Russia is there and it's a big country, but it's not a country that's going to have a successful socialist revolution, no, especially exactly. not if Germany doesn't have one. So, no, exactly. No, that, 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 makes, right? yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense. And presumably, I mean, I didn't want to um, go too deep into the historiography. You were talking about the, the historiography of writing on communism in the Balkans, mm. but presumably as well, this idea of the dominance of Russia, be it populism or Lenin or whatever, is mm. also presumably a product of Cold War historiography on, from the East, in a sense, right? It, it, does that make sense? So that it was kind of this yeah. Rush, Mother Russia, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of, you know, you, you could see how that fits together a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you know, there was a hyperproduction you know of uh, of works on you know just like lenin's links to the balkans also sort of overemphasized you know i mean uh I, you know there's a whole article on uh, lenin and the links with serbian social democracy for instance and you know if you read lenin's articles and you read what is published in the serbian newspaper at the time and what is published in pravda on the balkans you see that lenin is the one who is informed by filip filipovic not the other way around you yeah, know yeah. so which makes so, sense, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. So what Lenin knows about the Balkans is, you know, what he reads from Filip Filipovic. But essentially, when you read this, you know, work in Russian from I don't remember sixties or seventies, the yeah, idea is yeah. essentially well, Lenin is coming up with these ideas, and then the Balkan Marxists are reading Pravda and saying, oh yes, this is, you know, this is a very clever guy. We should look to his guidance, which yeah, you know, no, that, that doesn't really happen. You know, even not in 1917, 1918. Mm. You know, and that takes a few years before they actually, you know, can even get their hands on Lenin's literature. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, we, we might talk about Lenin in the context of the Balkan mm -hmm. Wars in a second. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, Lenin, as far as I know, never spent much time, if at all, in, in the so-called Balkan region. I mean, he lived yeah, in Germany for most of it. You know there. what I mean? And so it makes yeah. sense that he would have allies that are giving him the information that he's reading or speaking to or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and presumably then in, in, in Western Cold War historiography, you would have the same message just with the, the plus and minuses reversed. So, you know, yeah, communism yeah. was an alien thing to the Balkans. It was imposed by you know the the russians yeah, yeah. At, at, you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think as you say kind of uh, artificially imposed and then kind of trick mm. people you know, trick people into it by the the struggle against the, in, in the second world war and the partisans and you know yeah, it, yeah. you can kind of see how these things fit together a little bit and how they precisely yeah you know mm. at, in, that, in that sense how they dovetail with my own research right about the mm. the, the relationship between bolshevism and east and, and western europe and or you know yeah. and germany uh, in particular but no really interesting i mean and one one thing you 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 talked about it's a kind of strange well not strange it's a it's an important uh, uh, um va uh, validation or verification of marxism in a sense when you have similar conditions leading to similar results right with these intellectuals yeah. we talked about that in norway a little bit and one of the things that um i think is probably worth talking about now is the is the national question mm. via the prism of the left, right? So you've got you know yeah. you've, got the, you've set out broadly the the national question and on and the national question. So you've got the the different uh, groupings of peoples within this league or you know potential legal federation of peoples. Um, 
how how does it how does the national question play out in terms of the the the, the Balkan left? You know, because there's this huge debate in 1907, largely in German, although it would have been in, mm. certainly in Russian as well. You know, Kautsky, Bauer, Renner, Stalin. Uh, there are others I've forgotten. Um, mm. But you know, the huge debate on the national question is how does that find is does that find reflection in the Balkan uh, literature? Does the Balkan literature influence that? I mean, I know with Kautsky, it's mainly Austria. And the national question in in Austria and Hungary to a certain extent, because you know it's fallen apart by then. But still, yeah. um, that's what he's talking about. Um, how do, how does that play out? Yeah. So essentially, uh, yeah, the, the link with the national question starts already in the 1870s. I said it's kind of yeah, yeah. quite uh, closely knit there. But what we have by the 1890s, uh, I think it's kind of a different framing of the national question. Uh, Simply because in the time of, you know, what would have been considered utopian socialism of the 1870s, national liberation is kind of seen as a worthy cause in its own right. But by the 1890s, uh, the national question is either tied into issues of class or issues of uh, revolution directly. You know, okay, if national liberation is progressive, it's not because it is an end in itself, but because it results in uh, putting an end to feudalism. So... Well, they kind of completely transform the way they look at the national question. Of course, this is something the nationalists completely disregards today. But mm. uh, what we have uh, already before the Marxist debates on uh, the national question is a proliferation of these uh, uh, organizations, which uh, they were later described in the 1930s by Camilo Horvatin, uh, one of the uh, uh, victims of uh, Stalin's purge. Uh, he was a member in one of them in Croatia in the uh, second decade of the 20th century. He said this organization was half anarchist, half national revolutionary in character. Okay. And there's a major proliferation of such organizations in the Balkans from the 1890s until uh, the outbreak of the First World War. Uh, <clears throat> I'd say, um, you know, the, the most significant one is definitely the uh, internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, or IMRO. And, um, you know, uh, with them, you know, they start as very fuzzy. Today, you know, they are claimed by Bulgarian nationalists, they are claimed by Macedonian nationalists. But really, you know, the, I think the truth is really at the beginning, they themselves were unsure, you know, whether Macedonia is a separate nation or not. Some of them had ideas of sort of distinct Macedonianness, others had the idea of belonging to Bulgaria. Um, but uh, Essentially, from the very beginning, the Social Democratic Workers' Party, uh, it's 1894, if I'm not mistaken, mm. no, they have members in IMRO. So from the founding Congress, Vasil Glavinov, a social democrat, a Marxist, on the direct orders, you know, kind of an advice of Vlagoev, joins this organization. And they acknowledge that the socialists, they should have representatives in this uh, sort of national liberation organization. Mm. Uh, then... We have uh, in 1903, the Khrushchev Republic. It was essentially an anti-Ottoman uprising in sort of uh, present-day uh, central Macedonia in the town of Khrushchev. Uh, this uprising results in the brief uh, establishment of a republic. This uprising is completely led by IMRO, but all of these IMRO members are at the same time uh, members of the Bulgarian Social Democratic Workers' Party and specifically of the Narrows faction. So. Wow. Okay. There's yeah, there's already a participation which, interestingly, you know, they kind of uh, uh they kind of backtrack on that, you know, and uh, I think second international orthodoxy prevails after this Ilinden uprising. Right. They say, well, this was a mistake. This was an adventurous act. 
this was never going to work. And they kind of gradually start abandoning, uh, in Bulgaria at least, this idea of why uh, we should become involved with these national uh, movements. But, uh, you know, even when, uh, even when the Marxists are not involved with these movements, they have a kind of a uh, social character to them, or even, you know, socialist openly in some cases. So, you know, you have um, young Bosnia that Gavrilo Princip was a member of, and it's, I think it's highly disputed. Uh, there's some people who know more about it than me. It's highly disputed if he would have become uh, a communist himself, uh, most likely not. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of members of his group did uh, um, did eventually join uh, the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. Simo Miljus became a leading member. <clears throat> then you have the um, sort of Serbian nationalist uh, officers conspiratorial organization called the Black Hand, which essentially putting it, you know, <laughs> very simplistically is the Serbian mm. equivalent of the Young Turks. And they get massacred in the middle of the First World War by the Serbian monarchy. A lot of their leading members also become members of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. Uh, these uh, sort of young Croats as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very few of them become uh, the later future Croatian fascists, the Ustaše. Most of them join the Communist Party of Yugoslavia after 1918. Interesting. Uh, so uh, these ideas are kind of constantly present. And then what we have, I think, most significantly is also uh, in the um, in the first decade of the 1900s, an explicit elaboration, a Marxist elaboration of the national question as a peasant question. And this okay. is where hung Hungary becomes important. Right, so, right. so in the 1906-1907 edition of the Hungarian party theoretical journal, Socialismus, uh, uh, relatively unknown <laughs> then as now, <laughs> uh, a socialist called uh, Jen Rozvan uh, writes an article called uh, uh, Social Democracy and the Nationalities. Uh, the nationalities being uh, the Hungarian term for what today we would call national minorities. The term yeah, that's the, it's the same in German, the Nationalitäten, right? So it's very difficult to translate. You, you translate the nationalities question. Yeah, it sounds it's very... a national question. And it does yeah, later yeah. become the Nationalfrage. But I think there's probably there's a distinction maybe that we've lost between the national question per se and a yeah. specific form of the national question in relation to specific mm -hmm. small groups of people, yeah, right? So, precisely. so in Austria... It, you know, yeah, Austria's yeah. example where you have maybe, I don't know, Vienna in 1900 as maybe like 25 different national groupings, you know, yeah. in in one city, right? Um, you know, it's, it's certainly across the country. So, mm. yeah, the na national. So that's 1907. You, uh, 1906. The, so the issue, yeah, I would want, yeah. love to find out the exact date when this yeah. came out because it would be very significant in light of other debates. But on the issue, it just says 1906 slash 07. So I don't know when exactly this was published. Yeah. And is uh, yeah. this is this lengthy? I mean, what, what kind of? It's, it's in two parts, and I, I am hoping to eventually uh, put it up on my website as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, this, this full disclosure: Hungarian is not one of the languages I read. This was translated. I was just going to say you can't you can't have mine. Hungarian as well. <laughs> no, 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 Come on, no, no, that's uh, no, you know, no. it's like me saying I speak Finnish as well. Come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I do, I do not. Uh, I do not uh, speak nor read Hungarian. Okay. So this was translated for me by a friend. Uh, yeah. And uh, in, into which language? Into English. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I want to edit it a bit, and I will eventually put it. Yeah, up we should definitely. But I'm get also that hoping the publication of my academic article on this article. Fantastic. You know? no, uh, but uh, great. yeah, but why he's important is precisely yeah. that uh, he essentially uh, Rosvan he comes up with uh, 
of what I call Leninism before Lenin. And this is mm-hmm. not to suggest that there is some sort of, a, you know, platonic Leninism waiting to descend from the heavens, <laughs> but just, again, that, you know, somebody reaches this virtually identical conclusions to Lenin yeah. before Lenin himself, because they were using the same method. So essentially what he does uh, is, you know, he takes the statistical data of the Kingdom of Hungary from the population censuses, the economic data, and so on. And he says, there is no such thing as... Uh, bourgeoisie of the nationalities that is of the ethnic minorities right. all of our bourgeoisie is hungarian and this has to do with the assimilationist nation uh an assimilationist nature of the hungarian state so whoever becomes uh, uh rich either through being a member of the capitalist class or through joining the state apparatus becomes ethnically hungarian they adopt okay. the name the language and the customs so right. we cannot speak of uh this uh you know we cannot speak of minority nationalism as bourgeois nationalism and this is you know this is the big heresy for everyone because socialism starts uh you know kind of pushed by kautsky to counter the influence of renner and bauer in the hungarian social democratic party but then you have this article that goes against both yeah and there's a whole preface actually where the editors kind of affirm that they stand by bauer and that what Rosvan is saying is class collaboration, but nonetheless, they consider it a worthy uh, contribution to the debate, so they allowed it to be published. And, so, um, so, so, so just to interrupt you on that, so class collaboration, presumably because the, if, the, if so I'm just trying to see where they're coming yeah, yeah. from with their accusation, because obviously all of these things are based on a grain of truth, right? So presumably yeah. because that he's the, he's being accused of flattening the class contradictions within the nationalities to turn them against a Hungarian dominant bourgeois. Does that make sense? Uh, in a way, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. It's my fault because I jumped to another thing, but essentially his practical political proposal yeah. is that social democracy should politically align with the minority parties. Okay. And the minority parties are considered bourgeois nationalists. Okay. Of course, this is something that would be the United Front policy in the 1920s. So, you know, yeah. this is... Uh, we Although, always... I, again, I, I don't know enough. I you know, The way I understand the United Front policy is more... It, it, it's the various organizations, organizations of the working class. So, so I'm not quite sure. It, do you see yes, what I mean? Yes, and this is... Yeah, yeah. And this is where, yeah, again, we get to the fact of how little known... Uh, the Balkan context is because uh, right. United Front, uh, and it's good that you pointed it out, because yeah, I think quite a few people have been, what an ignoramus, United Front is communists and social democrats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is precisely that uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, the United Front is communists and agrarian and national parties, okay. because social democracy is a marginal political force. And they have debates, uh, you know, between the third and third and fourth Comintern Congress, where they're saying, you know, well, Social democracy is minuscule, pretty much all the workers join the Communist Party, but they're still the minority because workers are a minority in these countries. And then right. they're discussing who would be the equivalent. And they come to the conclusion that, yes, we should work with agrarian parties and minority parties. And very often, you know, the two overlap very explicitly, okay. such as, you know, the Croatian Peasant Party. It's a national minority and a class party. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. So this is why I say this is, you know, this already kind of, shows what the United Front is going to be in peripheral states, because in peripheral states, the United Front is very different than what we think of in terms of the United Front in a place like Germany or France. Yeah, the Social Democrats and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the Communists. Yeah. Interesting. And, and presumably, it's, it's, I just wanted to roll back quickly, so, again, because there's so much to discuss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, on the, the IMRO, the Macedonian organization, ah, yes. presumably as well, because you say that orth- Marxist orthodoxy prevailed and they kind of turned away from that as, as maybe mm. a mistake. And, and, you know, maybe yeah. it was, I don't know. But presumably as well, 
that could be the case made for, you know, this is actually the center of political struggle in these places. Do you see, and, and in any mm. sense, it would be criminal. So in, in a sense, you could make the opposite case that social democracy, you know, you know, so the, the, the politics of orthodox Marxism is that you you place a huge emphasis on high politics where the political yeah. struggle is, you know, not, not that you tail it, but you have things to say on these complicated questions. And in societies like this, where the national question is almost the defining thing, right? Mm. Um, you know, where you say where workers struggle in in in, in, in the narrow sense of the term is much more marginal the the, you know, the 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 question of the time that motivates everyone pretty much is the national mm. question so I, I think there could be without knowing the context at all this is the first time i've heard of imra there could be a yeah. case made that actually that wasn't bad a bad move as long as programmatically you don't become it or adapt to it too much does, does that make sense yeah, yeah I, I do i do think so and they you know they essentially do especially by the time of the common turn Develop the idea that uh, you know national uh, the national question is kind of the central piece of politics through which kind of the the plurality of political demands emanates. Yeah, you know? yeah. and essentially, um, yeah, and of course it becomes the important part of completing the bourgeois democratic stage of the revolution, right? Especially once they begin thinking later on in terms of uh, stages that obviously, you know, before socialism does away yeah, with the yeah. national question, the bourgeois democratic stage must somehow resolve it. And what we definitely see in these countries is that it is not resolved. And so, yeah, I think in a way, yeah, you have to engage with it, but then, you know, Mar Marxism engaging with it and saying that, yes, this makes sense from a Marxist perspective, from the perspective of unfinished revolution in the periphery and the class interests of the peasantry, this is not just, you know, some kind of an invented mechanical application it is some you know it is a marxist it's a truthful marxist analysis of contemporary reality yeah and yeah. um and presumably another... as well so sorry and presumably as well yeah. the idea would the, the orthodox idea would be as in russia that well it's Kautsky's idea originally isn't it that yeah. the further east you go the weaker the more corrupt the more corruptible the bourgeoisie to the extent that it exists even is so yeah, the yeah. working class and the peasantry must take a lead on these questions yeah, yeah. right because no Precisely. one else will you know, yeah, yeah. you know, the, 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 no one's going to, you know, I, I don't like the term bourgeois democratic, but you know, yeah, the, yeah. the work, the working class must oh, yeah, complete the, the, what are seen as the tasks of, you know, the bourgeois revolution when the yeah, bourgeoisie yeah, yeah. can't and won't and whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, bourgeois democratic is the term they would use later on in the 1920s. Yeah. I think exactly. here they would be talking about finishing the bourgeois revolution, revolution. or yeah. 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 But uh, yeah. Later they think in terms of stages more. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. Oh, that makes yeah, sense. but definitely, yeah. So the bourgeois the revolution, you know, it's something that seems to fall on the workers and peasants. And that's kind of what the left wing of social democracies thinks in a lot of places. And yeah. Rosvain kind of develops this uh, the most, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, he makes the argument that, okay, yes, there is, you know, there is a, a petty bourgeoisie, the lawyers and priests of these minorities, you know, but uh, they are, they are essentially materially dependent on this minority, you know, the priests on their parishioners and the lawyers yeah. on those uh, peasants and workers who they represent in court by you know speaking their language so they become sort of organic intellectuals essentially these people right, so right. this is his argument as for why this isn't class collaboration effectively yeah. you know and um like he is also the, you know he's also the first one to begin kind of serious uh well not the first one but he is a part of this wave of uh, the movement of the agrarian proletariat in uh the kingdom of hungary which becomes really uh, an important factor in the 1900s. But the main issue I think that develops in a lot of places is precisely this, that yeah. in conditions 
of underdeveloped capitalism, the national question is a peasant question, and therefore it's a matter of class. And this, I think, kind of is the main takeaway of my research, and hence sickle without hammer, because yeah, yeah. Uh, you know the idea is okay. You are you know in some Transylvanian village. You are an impoverished peasant. You uh, work somebody else's land, and this person lives in the city, and uh, you're and speaks a different language. And your reasoning, your kind of intuitive reasoning, is oh, this is because I'm Romanian and he's Hungarian. And this is how you become a nationalist. But effectively, what you're doing is you're articulating your class dissatisfaction. Yeah, and the yeah. similar processes between you know, Christians and Muslims in Macedonia and so on. And yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. The, the one thing I, before we, we we probably should go on and, and just uh, briefly at least touch on these the, the Balkan wars. But I, I also wanted to um, you, there are. There are a number of uh, Balkan social democratic conferences, right? So presumably that's pretty much all of the countries you're talking about, their parties getting together. That was separate to the international, presumably, right? Uh, yes, but they were a second international. But they were all second international organizations. How many conferences yeah. were there roughly in, uh, before uh, World War I? Uh, there's only one before World War I and one okay. during World War One. The third one is already the founding conference of the Balkan Communist Federation. Okay, so so there's one before. So when when is that? Yeah. So the first one is in Belgrade in 1910, uh, January 1910 or December 1909, depending on whether you use the Gregorian or the Julian <laughs> calendar. <laughs> Which is another another complicated yeah. question, right? God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's just say yeah. December, um, yeah, yeah. just for the sake of argument. And, and, and what is, is, is there a particular occasion for that? That, that sparks it or is it just a recognition that something needs to be done to coordinate because well, you obviously have the young turks in 08 yeah. is there a particular um i, I, I think it's a re- i think it's a recognition of these several mounting crises you okay. know that you have the elinden uprising in macedonia in 1903 uh you have uh, the peasant revolt in 1907 in romania this uh I didn't mention, but this is a big moment for Romanian socialists as well, where they see, you know, the power of the peasantry as a social force, mm. the brutality which we, with which it is put down. And, you know, that's why Gera names it neo-serfdom. He acknowledges that right. these people, and this is, again, uneven development of capitalism, right? That the, the yeah. development of capitalism in Romania has resulted actually in a reinforcement of feudal structures, something the Hungarians also feel at the time. And then in 1908, you have the Young Turk Revolution, you have the uh, you have the Austro-Hungarian annexation of Bosnia. And, you know, from this point on, Bosnia and Serbia are on the verge of war, essentially constantly. Austria-Hungary subjects Serbia to an economic blockade, and it's essentially the only trading partner that Serbia has. So, uh, interesting. the situation is becoming very, very harsh kind of um, all over. And I think they just, you know, they become, begin realizing that the need for uh, Balkan-wide coordination becomes more pertinent than ever. And right. this is when, you know, when the idea of Balkan federalism becomes not just some abstract su- struggle against great powers, but against imperialism. And right. in the proclamation of the first Balkan Social Democratic Conference, we see that they've begun reading contemporary Marxist literature and imperialism, because they're already saying that uh, the uh, you know, the, it, it is a bit normative, you know, like, yes, there's, you know, sort of a uh, a linear development of capitalism, which, you know, has for us been stunted because of the appearance of financial capital, which has deformed our societies. So, okay. so they, you know, they do use this kind of, uh, uh, of teleological presumption that, you know, there would have, there would have been a certain way of development were it not for imperialism. And we dis- dismay, we're in dismay over that, but 
nevertheless, you know, what yeah, is yeah. really important for me is that they are beginning to look at this in terms of imperialism, in terms of exporting capital. And uh, this is really a kind of like a big uh, groundbreaking moment for them. Is that also reflected? So, you know, you talked about literature, unknown literature, forgotten literature on the national question. Do we get stuff uh, from the Balkan left on imperialism that isn't so kind of one sided or teleological or whatever? Mm-hmm. It, it, are, there, are there more? Are there some interesting? Because obviously there's a huge there's a proliferation. There's, there's a whole uh, volume, isn't there, by uh, Guido and Day on just I think it's called discovering imperialism. You know, this huge output in the German party. Um, is is there is there literature as well on that, or is it more kind of absorption um, of it? And then I, I, there is a super interesting one uh, by uh, well, again I consider it in the Balkan canon because of this specific period, but it's a no. hung- Hungarian author, uh, no. Jozef Pogan, who's later a People's Commissar in the Hungarian Soviet Republic, an important Comintern functionary in the U.S. under the name John Pepper. Before he's also no. uh, killed in the purges, and Pogan writes a pamphlet. Uh, uh, which is called uh, uh, Austro-Hungarian Imperialism in the Balkan War, or Balkan okay. War and Austro-Hungarian Imperialism, something like that. Uh, uh, it was almost immediately translated into Serbo-Croatian. Uh, the Hungarian version is available in memory of the World Library, for those right. who can read it, but uh, uh, I got myself a copy that was already translated. And yeah, he essentially has a, uh, a, a very good materialist critique of Austria-Hungary and its policy towards the Balkans. And he also there, you know, maybe he was reading Pogani, maybe there's a broader kind of group there that I'm kind of trying to look into, but he also Mm. has this idea of the national question as a peasant question as well. He talks, you know, he pretty much completely demystifies this idea of sort of inherent hatred between Serbs and Austria-Hungary, which, you know, this is something we're still taught in schools to explain the war, which, you know, is just absurd because obviously this had very clear economic causes and motivations and Pogani writes about that really well but why why would that be taught sorry sorry for ignorance but why would yeah. why would there be an interest for the Serbian state to teach that in school that, that doesn't make sense to me I mean you know, the Balkan states today all have very ethnocentric nationalist histories and they legitimize contemporary rule through that whether it's you know kind of a yeah nationalist but- no, that, that makes sense. But why why would why wouldn't you just say, yeah, it was because of the the attempts to enslave us by the Austro-Hungarians? Or is that how it's explained? Well, I mean, it, it is that, yeah. But okay, they do okay. It, you know, they do it because they hate us, not for economic conditions. I see. I see. So I misunderstood. That's my part. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So, uh-huh, so yeah, they, yeah. they did it because yeah. they hate us because we're different yeah, 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 or whatever. No. Okay, yeah, no, yeah. That, make, that makes sense. I I, I, I completely I mean, misunderstood the, the, the point yeah, you made. So I was thinking yeah, they're, yeah. they're doing it like on the level of um, we hate them or something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, no, 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 they hate us. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and I suppose that leads us seam- seamlessly on. So and, and it's, so the second the second social democratic conference of the Balkans is the, the significant one, or the most probably the most the, the best the best the known best one known because known it's known. it's the one that reorientates the left towards an anti imperialist and Simovaldist perspective, yeah. right? Um, and that's in 1915. 15, 15 exactly yeah, yeah. that you know that's clearly you know you talk about these shifting you know peripheries and cores and all the rest of it you can see that actually in terms of that question it, it there is it is kind of the the south zudost uh that left that is actually taking a, a very strong and yeah. principled position on this question as opposed to you know the the the, the former kind of a leading and dominant narrative yeah, yeah. That's and I think uh, yeah I, I think this already <laughs> starts during the balkan wars i mentioned that briefly yeah. that, you know they don't you know if you were an Orthodox Marxist, you should think that an attack of the Balkan states on the Ottoman Empire should be progressive because it's going to end the vestiges of feudalism. And the Serbian Social Democratic Party actually during the first Balkan War has 
a controversy on that issue. So, okay. um, you know, they should we, should, so at this point, should we maybe just go out, switch on to these two wars and exactly because you mentioned the second one and Montenegro, I think it was. Oh, no, it was in Macedonia. Yeah. So essentially in the first uh, in the first one, uh, Serbia, Bulgaria, uh, Montenegro and Greece uh, would declare war on the Ottoman Empire and push the Ottoman Empire out of the Balkans or at least up to Adirne. Uh, and then in the Second Balkan War, Serbia and uh, Bulgaria go to war over Macedonia, but uh, Greece and uh, Montenegro are also on the Serbian side. So Bulgaria is kind of the loser of this war, hence also Bulgaria later joining the Central Powers as opposed to Serbia um, okay. in 1914. Yeah. Uh, but what you have in 1912 is uh, that uh, you have two MPs of the Serbian Social Democratic Party, uh, Dragi Šalapčević, who's essentially the Serbian Kautsky, I think that's the easiest way to describe him later on this account, refuses to enter the Communist Party, uh, but he is the main Marxist theoretician of the Serbs at the time. And you have Trisha Katslerovic, who in the 20s would be the general secretary, uh, oh, oh, sorry, the organizational secretary of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, before general secretary was a, a title. <laughs> and um, yeah, and uh, Katslerovic is the one who opposes the war. He says, you know, there's nothing progressive about this war. We are merely becoming a tool of Russian politics in the Balkans, and it's not going to lead to the uh, desired true liberation of these people in Kosovo, in Macedonia, and so on. Whereas Katslerovic, he thinks, well, no, actually, this is going to uh, end feudalism. So, you know, they can't uh, agree. He doesn't want to support the war, but when it comes down to uh, voting for the uh, uh, the the war credits, you know, just like in 1914, uh, Lapchev votes against, and uh, Katslerovic is absent, so he effectively abstains. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So they are not, you know, they're not all on the same page. But by 1914, precisely because they see the outcome of the two Balkan wars, they are on the same page. Yeah, okay, that um, makes sense. Yeah. So, so in, it, it's, it it's a precursor to 1914, insofar as you start to see tensions between Russia. And yeah. the Austro-Hungarian Empire is that is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. why, and and, and, that, and that's clearly seen as such. So, yeah. so basically, it, it would be the case then that this 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 the team of nations: Serbia, Bulgaria, Greece. I, I was writing them down quickly. I missed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they, in what sense are they acting in Russian interests? Is that because yeah. Russia is basically uh, uh, funding? How how does it play out? What, 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 yes. In what sense can they be seen as acting in so, Russian interests? It's essentially these states are seen as kind of a mini Russias, you know, and exponents of Russian foreign policy in the Balkans. And the no. fact that they are all orthodox is something that Russia utilizes, uh, not just as soft power, you know, Russia through all of these wars sends weapons, you know, in 1877, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, Russia actually enters a war uh, yeah. with the Ottoman Empire. So Russia kind of very intentionally posit positions itself as the protector of the Balkan Christians. Right. But that becomes a tool of exercising political influence uh, in the region. Austria-Hungary tries the same. I mean, this part yeah, of yeah. You know, why Serbs believe Austria-Hungary hated the Serbs, because Austria-Hungary then brokers the establishment of an independent Albania right. to prevent Serbia from gaining access to sea through there. Because, yeah, you know, yeah. and then said, you know, it's essentially, uh, you know, what Serbia was trying to do to Albania, what uh, Austria-Hungary did to Bosnia, and what the other, you know, European powers did to Africa. So... Yeah, you know, there's, yeah. This, there's this awareness there uh, as well, but essentially, yeah, the the point of view is that yeah, these countries are 
essentially you know putting into action Russian expansionist politics. This, of course, yeah, yeah. This, of course, is why Marx and Engels also oppose the liberation movements of uh, the Balkan nations because what they see in Austria-Hungary is that they side with the court against the Hungarians, and what they see the Ottoman Empire is that they're exponents of Russian foreign policy, and they see Russia at the time as the most reactionary power in Europe. Yeah. But it was only later yeah. in the 1890s with Rosa Luxemburg who begins arguing that no, at this point the Ottoman Empire is irreformable, so we should consider that these uh, Balkan nationalist movements are actually potentially progressive. This is what changes the attitude and, and not that's, controversy. And that's why Luxembourg supports the fir- the first Balkans war critically, right? She says this is yes, actually yes, a yes. kind of step forward. And do you think do you think that's a do you think that's also in its sense a kind of manifestation of schematism or schematic mechanical thinking in this? Or do you think it's, it's, she's a bit more nuanced than that? Because it, it was surprising mm. when you mentioned that. I can't remember when it was in the talk or maybe we were yeah, talking yeah. afterwards. And that, that that did surprise me, um, given her you know given her general take on World War One, you know, which mm. basically is you know you what's going on in Serbia, what's going on in Belgium is basically a manifestation of competing great powers, and nobody's mm. got an interest in it. You know, no, no man, no penny, no man, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, did you think that's just a, it was just a slight misreading, or do you think it's a correct yeah. position, or do you, it just seems it seems incongruent with a later position? However, what you said about the social democratic MPs seems mm. to suggest that you know, having kind of gone half gone along with it, or not quite fully, yeah. you know, then they see what actually was, then they can oppose second, the First World War. So yeah, I think it's you know, I think um, it's it's really a matter of perspective, you know. Uh, you know, whether you're looking at, uh, you know, a Balkan-wide perspective or if you're looking at a global perspective. And this is what mm. distinguished Lenin, you know, that Lenin yeah. was looking at this uh, sort of global revolutionary chain of events. So it was yeah. always uh, this that was uh, <clears throat> affecting it. But if we are looking at, you know, okay, Balkan peoples are under feudalism. Is this yeah. going to be purely a step forward? You know, in a way, yes. And I mean, I think that essentially what I'm saying is from a hundred years difference, there is a uh, distance, there is merit to sort of uh, both positions, you know, and definitely mm-hmm. kind of driving out the Ottoman Empire out of Europe that, you know, uh, did contribute to its further deterioration and collapse. And it was, you know, I think irreformable, just like the Russian Empire, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So in that sense, good riddance, right? Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, you know, this, you know, this is in liberal accounts, this is what is always emphasized, you know, this is an incredibly brutal process. This is, uh, you know, this expansionism is, uh, you know, followed by brutal murders of Muslims, uh, Albanians, especially in Kosovo. You know, Albanians are already the majority population of Kosovo at the time that the Serbs conquer it in 1912, even though they consider it liberation. You know, and, you know, the, but, uh, you know, and that that is true. I mean, it's, uh, without a doubt, this was a very brutal war and a lot of these crimes were ethnically motivated. But I think in a sense, you know, this is, not atypical of many bourgeois transformations that have been sure. taking place in Europe throughout the 19th century, you know. And in, yeah, the question would be then how you how you respond to that strategically, in a sense, wouldn't you? Because you, yeah, you know, yeah. it, and it, it, it's it's a tricky one because obviously if you, if you have nothing to say on it, but it, it, it strikes me as always problematic is that if it, if you know basically it, maybe it's wrong to see it as a precursor to World War One. Maybe that's slightly over exaggerated. But when you can see these forces start to crystallize. I think then you know no no uh, principle of kind of like self determination or whatever is absolute in the sense that you know this is actually feeding into yeah, yeah. It's, it's a tricky question and obviously what one thing I didn't mention this has occurred to me now you're talking about Marx and Engels there is that um, incredibly problematic 
Engels term about the non-historic peoples. Now, I, you know, I, I come from a, a small country called Wales, which could definitely be classified as a non-historic peoples. But is Engels also writing about the Balkans here and, and Eastern Europe? I think that's generally his his approach, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he considers yeah the uh, the South Slavs of uh, the Austrian Empire to be that, and again, it has to do with the role they are playing because yeah, you know yeah. they have you know they become embroiled in the events of 1848, 1849, and you think that, you know, they would play some sort of progressive role against Vienna, but actually their national demands end up clashing with Hungarian national demands, right. you know, and uh, yeah, this yeah. is why they end up siding with the Habsburgs over the Hungarians, which, you know, eventually is bloodily put down by the uh, sort of joint forces of Russia and Austria, and Russia plays a crucial role there. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I think, you know, what this shows, you know, but this might be obvious with a perspective of, you know, 100 and what, 70 years of course, this is an early example of the limitations of liberal nationalism, yeah, that, yeah. you know, nationalism started off as liberal, but it very soon hit these obstacles, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and very quickly in the 19th century, it would go completely in a conservative and then in a reactionary direction. But what Engels was looking at is essentially you know, ending feudalism and the kind of class relations of forces and how do these peoples relate to that and all that he could see is that they are playing a role in, you know, postponing the necessary end of feudalism in the Austrian Empire. So Yeah, I, I don't sense. like the term non-historic peoples, but, 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 yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm just trying to put it in this context of, you know, what, what, how, how does that fit? And it's actually related, isn't it, as you say, about feudalism, yeah, capitalism, yeah. you know, what is progressive and... It strikes me as well, as you say, with, with 100 years hindsight, it's clearly obvious that, you know, that the, the, the correct thing to have said or to have done. But, you know, when it's immediate, mm. uh, you never quite know. And yeah, yeah. The, the, the significance of placing it within the global context, because, again, that's what Luxembourg does as well. Right. She's not somebody who's like a parochial thinker, but it just yeah, seems yeah. to me strange that she would, especially as, you know, yeah. if Marx and Engels thought that, that Russia was the most reactionary power in Europe, of course, Luxembourg certainly did. I mean, she's, you yeah. know, she's from Poland right? and, uh, yeah. you know, so, so the. It's 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 a tricky one, and then you know, but by the 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 second Balkan War, then it, you it probably the the limited or the non-progressive or the you know, the problematic nature becomes a bit clearer, right? Because then the blocks start to split up and yeah, everything, yeah. and yeah, then if, you know, yeah, I think oh, we're looking as I said, you know, with a hundred and ten years distance, yeah. both points of view are valid, but I think by the time of the second. Balkan War, it becomes yeah. very obvious if you're a Marxist, yes, those who are against the war are correct. You know? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, and then, then you have this situation that, I mean, a little known fact as well, it's it's not just uh, Serbian nationalists that say that, but uh, that say this, but I think Serbia was the, what suffered the most casualties in World War One, right? Is, uh, per, per capita, yes. Capita, yeah, yeah per capita. About yeah. a third of the male population lost yeah. their lives in the war. Yeah, yeah. it's, uh, you know, and, and uh, so, so it's this remarkable kind of outcome in the sense of this, you know, this this attempt to free Serbia and uh, you yeah. know and, 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 to, and then it just gets drowned in the in the overarching uh, fallout between the world powers and it's just, it's a remarkable series of events isn't it that then lead to yeah. that Absolutely. Um, yeah. you know so yeah so that's um that's the first and second Balkan Wars of course of Luxembourg yeah. um just finally, I mean, you mentioned your book, uh, um, the, the the sickle without the hammer. Just to make yeah. sure I get the right way around, sickle without the hammer. That is in in progress, is it? Is it? Do you have? So basically, I mean, I'm working on the manuscript, and I'm in parallel sending proposals uh, to 
uh, to okay. some publishing houses. So yeah, I don't want to announce no, it no, publicly, but, would, but yeah, I am working on it. And I'm fantastic. I'm and you know, by the end of 2024, it should be done. So. But, well, if there are any publishers listening, please feel free to get in contact <laughs> with Stefan. Uh, I can put all your details for you know social media and all the rest yeah, of it. The website, can, the website, <laughs> yeah. uh, your website and everything. And I think maybe it would be good as well. I'm trying to write notes, but some of the names, because of the way they're pronounced, I can't, I can't write yeah, them out. I, I can so, send you... It yeah. might be useful just in the show notes to have some name, you know, I'm sure there'd be wiki links and stuff. I, I've read up a yeah. lot of the people that you mentioned to me and found some wiki stuff in, in German or yeah. English. Um, and, you know, so people can can go away. Is it, we've mentioned Todd Arova, you mentioned, um, was it, what's the guy, guy's name that wrote? Wait, uh, this George uh, Haupt, but he wrote in German and French. It's not in English. There's Socialism Socialismus in Europa was his book, uh, which is uh, I've got in German. Yeah, yeah. That's a good book, but it's not in English. Um, there was also was it not Ferguson? What was the 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 British uh, British American guy that wrote? The, the, uh, uh, you said before uh, Todoroba there was a study of the Bulgarians. I think I, I'd have to rewind. Uh, there was, um, uh, I mean, there was. I mentioned Woodford McClellan is the one who's McClellan. Sorry, McClellan. Yeah. That's right. Mc, uh, so, he's he's yeah. the one making the argument that uh, the roots of Balkan socialism are in Germany and not in yeah. Russia. So that's Matt McClellan. We can maybe link to that as well. Is there anything yeah. else you would recommend? I mean, it, 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 also just yeah, general yeah. histories of the book. And we haven't talked about today because we, you know, obviously we're taking yeah, the time yeah. a lot. And you know, clearly, I say one of the my earliest political memories, as I was saying to you earlier on, I'm not from a political mm. or educated background, was watching uh, uh, Belgrade on TV in '92. I think I was seven or eight years of age. Um, you know, so we haven't got into the national, you know, and that would be a, a really interesting thing to do in the future as well. But in terms of, um, you know, general histories, yeah. uh, uh, outlines, is it is this stuff that's, you know, not terrible in terms of, you know, more yeah. accessible works? Because, you know, often I find, you know, I was reading something on Poland the other day and yeah. ah, it's just, <laughs> you know, it, you know, you can see it from the Polish perspective as well, but it's, it's just the nationalist tinged here and there and, and, and it's just not particularly yeah. helpful. So, you know, is there good... Uh, left leftist literature on on the Balkans that you would recommend uh, and or the Balkan left yeah. we've mentioned Todorova I think I think a good summary of Balkan history is Mazau, Mark Mazauer's The Balkans you know, okay. he's kind of like a sort of a social democrat kind of type I can't think yeah. of sort of overarching Marxist histories that's uh, up to you of the Balkans yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> ideally yeah but uh, another uh, yeah so George Haupt uh, there is this edited volume where he has an article on uh, the Balkan parties and the relationship to SPD, which has been published in English. Okay, I didn't uh, know that. We'll, yeah, try, yeah. we'll try and link that I, as well, right? I cannot, yeah, I cannot remember the name of the volume right now, but I do name, know that the article is called The Model Party and it is available online. Okay. So I can Fantastic. Uh, send we'll that. Yeah, there's a, a really, really good book also available in Memory of the World, uh, which is uh, in English uh, called Comintern and the uh, Peasant Parties in Eastern Europe uh, by George D. Jackson. So okay. this one was written in the 60s, and it's, you know, uh, a bit of a Cold Warrior style. It focuses on the interwar period, which we didn't really get to now, but it's extremely interesting. Yeah. And the author, you can see that he took the communists seriously. He learned his Marxism, and even though he didn't agree with it, he 
gave a really good explanation of what the Communist International was trying to do in the Balkans, which right, right. hopefully we'll have some time for some episode about that. It's, yeah, as well it, in instructive. Future, I mean, so even, even the stuff we kind of set out ourselves to do, we, re- we really stopped yeah. by about 1914, uh, yeah, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. you know, I think, you know, given how much I've learned today, I hope the listeners have, you know, picked up a lot of things yeah. as well. It's just trying to get, first of all, you know, to, to imagine this space and this time and fit things mm. together. And then you can start thinking about the, yeah, yeah. so yeah, we could definitely do Precisely. You know, yeah. 1917 to 41 or 45 yeah, or, yeah. or whatever um for sure yeah. that'd be great um, to do and another one that i would really like to point out is uh uh pavlos Hatsopoulos, uh the balkans beyond nationalism and identity okay. uh, so that's i mean that book looks at the uh, a lot of the non-nationalist ideologies in the balkans so it also looks at liberalism and so on but it has a really good uh, chapter on socialism and communism in the Balkans, which has very much informed my outlook, and I like it a lot. So that's something I definitely highly recommend. Uh, Todorova is obviously there. Yeah. Um, uh, her uh, latest book, The Lost World of Socialists on Europe's Margins. Uh, in terms of uh, historiographies of individual Balkan communist parties, yeah, I, I can't really think of... Uh, in, uh, Hilde Haug has a good summary on the Communist Party of Yugoslavia and the national question. Okay. Uh, uh, but in general, yeah, a lot of the stuff that has been published was published in English during the Cold War era. And it has very much this idea of, you know, this, uh, these kinds of stereotypes of communists as being anti-national and they're just subverting the nation. And uh, I, I can't think of many others that I could recommend as sort of sure, sure. Good reading material in that sense, in English at least. And um, I should say as well, if if any of you listening do have uh, a, a questions, follow up questions, you might just uh, please let me know, and we can uh, we can bring them up. They, uh, hopefully, hopefully the, we can. Sorry, go on. Sorry, oh, sorry but I I completely forgot. But yes, uh, 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 Dragan uh, Plavšić and Andrea Živković have an edited volume uh, called "The Balkan Socialist Tradition in the Balkan Federation," which is sort of an uh, annotated compilation of the crucial theoretical texts. Uh, from Marx and Engels until the First World War. Okay, so, it's so kind of what covering. we've been doing today. Yeah, precisely. So a lot of the stuff that we've discussed today can be yeah. read in English already, which okay. is F- fantastic. Apart from that, that Hungarian pamphlet on the national question, which we need, and yeah. uh, so you, you know, that's that's up down to you as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's I mean, I can translate it from Serbo-Croatian into English, but I think the Hungarian version on memory of the world is OCR, so you know, somebody can put it through Google Translate. Yeah, if there are any Hungarian-speaking yeah. people. And, and there is an okay uh, biography of uh, Jozef Pogany as well, actually, available in English called uh, okay. Communist Odyssey. Communist mm-hmm. Odyssey. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I, I think um, we should probably wrap it up there. But thank you so much, Stefan, for your time and keep up the good work. I, I think, yeah, thank you. We've, we've kind of I we haven't quite booked in the date, but we definitely have to do a follow up. And, I would love um, to. <laughs> you, you know, it's it's great, and so I've I've learned so much, and it's, it's kind of opened up new perspectives for me. And uh, you know how little I knew actually, and how much I've learned now, and you know other questions that follow from that. You know, from my kind of German Russian dominant reading of you yeah. know this history, and uh, you know there's obviously a lot more to it. So yeah. thank you very much. And thank you. And if I might add one thing for the end, since you mentioned sure, sure. the German Russian thing, I think uh, one major thing that I'm really trying to achieve is also to kind of you know, bring the thought of these people to the fore, because we really do have this sort of German-Russian implicit, sometimes even explicit division when we think of Marxism, you know, or it would be Soviet and Western Marxism. But what I'm really trying to show, and this becomes, I'd say, in some ways even more pertinent once we get to the interwar period, is that, yes, these places do have native Marxist political traditions. Some of they bore some really significant thinkers that we should really take seriously. And 
I think you know a lot of what I do is uh, also an attempt to kind of introduce these people into the sort of canon of global socialist thought. Yeah. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to also kind of have another platform for doing so. Today. No, not, not a problem. I say fascinating. And I say even for me, I've been rocking around the block for a long time, but, you know, new new names, new ideas and, and, and all the rest of it. And finally, kind of see how, you know, the, the World, War, World War One and the first two Balkan Wars t- kind of fit together in a way that I didn't before. Um, mm-hmm. So, no, re- really, really pleased to have had you on. And um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.